This is episode 106 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Lisa Johnson. She received her master's and bachelor's degrees in communication sciences and disorders from the University of Minnesota, Duluth. She's an SLP, clinical mentor, and rehab program development specialist with Benedictine Health System. Ms. Johnson holds ASHA Certificate of Clinical Competence as a member of ASHA Special Interest Group 13, a member of the Twin Cities Speech-Language Pathology Organization, and has 10 years' experience as an SLP. Her clinical focus includes work with hospitals, subacute care facilities, transitional care units, rehab and skilled nursing facilities, home health and outpatient clinics focusing on interdisciplinary program development, CMS regulations and requirements across care settings, patient and clinician education, and program development. So I hope you guys all love this episode. Lisa is one of the most knowledgeable people that I have ever spoken to in terms of CMS, Medicare, payer status, how does billing work, what's legal, what's not, where to go to find this, where, she's incredible. So uh, yes, as you are well aware, October 1st is upon us, which means the dreaded PDPM for some people and the yay PDPM for other people. So um, hopefully Lisa helps kind of clear up a lot of the myths that are going around about it. Um, But she also, in the show notes, you guys check those out because she left a ton of incredible links. So if you aren't sure what she's talking about or if you're hearing conflicting information from your boss, somebody like that, the links are all here for you to go double check. So hopefully this is an extremely informative episode for you. And I just adore Lisa. She's so, so knowledgeable. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Lisa. Hi, how are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? Doing great. Thank you. Yes, I am so excited to have you on this episode. I'm excited to be here. A little nervous, but excited. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's so funny how we all kind of like, quote unquote, meet each other, you know? And I know you, you've been a member of the MedSLP Collective and, you know, every time you chime in about, you know, regulatory things and the sniff and billing and everyone's like, who is this Lisa girl? She's like so smart. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah. I was like, go on girl, tell the people. So then at the collective live event, I had like four different people come up to me and they were like, do you know this Lisa girl? You need to get her on the podcast now. And I was like, noted. Okay. We will get her on. So, oh, thank you. so thank you, yeah. Lisa. Yeah, thank you for helping so many people and being you. So, yeah. So tell the people who you are. Well, I'm Lisa Johnson. So I live in St. Paul, Minnesota. I've been a speech-language pathologist for, oh gosh, a little over 10 years now. Um, And absolutely love what I do. I'm very fortunate to be in the position I'm in and be really on a different side of the speech world and the therapy world in itself. So it's really given me the opportunity to see everything that goes on within our healthcare system and see where we can make big impacts and changes because 
sometimes we feel like we're on our own little island and it's nice to know that there are some people out there that are trying to make really big changes. So, <laughs> yes, yes. What is, what is your exact title? So I am the rehab program development specialist for our organization. And I'm also one of our clinical education mentors. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So what does that entail? <laughs> so it's a really, really big, long title. Essentially what it means is that anything within the rehab world, so PT, OT, speech, that touches any other discipline within our skilled nursing, our transitional care units, or our home health and outpatient, I work on the education and the programming for it. So for an example, restorative programming. So how do we bridge that gap moving someone from skilled therapy services over to that bridge of nursing restorative services and really maintain their level of function without seeing kind of this bounce back, kind of our repeat customers. So working on programming for that, how do we educate our frontline staff? How do we educate our CNAs and our therapists to collaborate for what's best for the patient? Awesome. I love it. How did this position come to be, Lisa? (laughs) So this position was actually, I'm actually the first one in our organization with this position. It was kind of a hybrid creation. We had a part-time support staff personnel who did a lot of our compliance education. Um, So more focused on just the therapy side of things, making sure we have our regulatory docs in a row. And when she was getting ready to retire, my new boss, the boss I have now, recognized that there's this big need for this collaborative programming, for this education that doesn't just exist in therapy, but also exists within all of our departments because it has to be an interdisciplinary approach to really affect the patient in a positive manner. So he had pitched the idea. They got approval for this position. And this is all in the background. I didn't know any of this until after the fact. And my boss, our regional therapy director, had encouraged me to apply. And then the rest of my team, I was a director of therapy at the time, had encouraged me to apply. And so I applied for the position, got an interview, and then I went into emergency labor and missed my interview. Oh, Lisa. <laughs> oh, goodness. So I actually called my boss at the time. I was My husband was driving me to the airport and I said, so I might be late for morning meeting and I don't think I'm going to make my interview tomorrow, but can we just reschedule for the next day? And the next communication they all got was a picture from my husband of our son. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so... I kind of just wrote it off, didn't expect that I'd end up in this position and got a phone call from HR and they said, hey, what are you doing on Tuesday? I was like, well, I just started my maternity leave. So, you know, they're like, hey, can you just come in for the interview? Okay, I can do that. Then I get a call on Friday. So three days before the interview and they said, oh, by the way, we need you to do two 45 minute presentations on skilled maintenance therapy and the GMO Act and how you do collaborative education within interdisciplinary teamwork. Like, oh, okay. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so showed up at the interview, you know, rocked out the presentations. My mom actually had to drive me to the interview because I wasn't cleared for driving yet. I was still on yes. pain meds. <laughs> yes. Oh, Lisa. I love it. So, this yeah. is the reality, man. This is it. This is how we live. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's And the position itself has been 
you know, the job description is evolving as we're recognizing the different needs within our departments, within our organization. And as regulatory changes happen, we're creating the position as we go. So it's been an amazing experience. I have a lot of input in what goes on in our organization and what goes on in my position as well. Awesome. I love it. I love it so much. (laughs) All right. So we're getting down to our final days in September as we're doing this recording. So what does that mean? What's the big scary date coming up? So it's not a scary date. Yay. On the calendar. It's just a date. It's just a date on the calendar. There's nothing scary about it. I hear so many rumors and so many freak outs. I have administrators, DONs, therapy directors calling me. They're like, October 1st is coming. Yes, it falls after September. (laughs) Like, we don't need to freak out about it. Yes, Yes, there are changes coming. But really, the changes are to how we get paid, not how we perform our services. There's been no changes in what skilled therapy is, what it means, what it means to qualify for skilled therapy. We're really just switching counting numbers to ensuring we have all of our patient diagnostics correct and making what we do as a whole disciplinary team count and getting credit for it. So don't be afraid. Awesome. (laughs) Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'd like to take a quick second to thank our wonderful sponsor, EndoHD. They're a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fee studies. EndoHD is a compact fee system with a maneuverable design that provides convenience to do fees in more locations in the hospital, ICU, CCU, PICU, exam room, patient room. At Altara Vision, they combine cutting-edge technology with clinician-inspired devices and phenomenal customer service to make the best imaging devices in the country. Go to www.ndohd.com forward slash contact to discuss your specific fee systems requirements, pricing, or to request a live product demonstration. That's www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. Well, and I think, you know, what I love from, of what I hear about your organization and kind of there's, there's a underlying resounding theme in these organizations that are doing things the right way and the ethical way seem to be the <laughs> ones that are not freaking out. And it seems to be the ones that we all know are like these horribly unethical profit driven facilities are the ones that are freaking out, cutting everyone's hours. And I think oh, that's yeah. a huge red oh, yeah. flag. And I mean, if you read a lot of the transcripts and the Q&As from CMS, they've basically said, we don't expect anything to change. And if it does, that's when you're going to get in trouble. So if we see a massive drop in therapy services, if we see a massive increase in the complexity of the patients you're taking, but you've changed nothing in your training and your staffing, that's a huge red flag. So let's see, where do we want to go from here? Well, where can we go? Um, let's see. So maybe talking about some of kind of those rumors that we're hearing. Everyone's kind of freaking out. I, I hear kind of one of two things, especially from our speech-language pathology group. It's my hours are being cut. I'm not going to have a job. Or all of a sudden, I'm going to have to evaluate every single person, do the BIMS, do the PHQ-9, and my case is going to explode, and I'm the only SLP in a 50-mile radius. Yes. And I think to that, it's, you know, if you're treating patients now and you have a good process for patient identification, whether it's a good intake and screening process, or 
if you have that good collaborative relationship with the physicians, with the nurses that are bringing people in, then you really shouldn't see a drastic change in your caseload, in your hours. But to those who are freaking out, you need to know, and I think we all need to know, what is our role within this transition? And making sure that we can advocate for ourselves and for our patients. You know, there's all these rumors around there saying, oh, well, we're going to get paid for PT, for OT, for speech, irregardless of whether you're treating or not. So that's not true. While, yes, you do fit in a case mix index or a payment grouping, if you're not getting the treatment that's needed, you're not going to see the outcomes that you expect. Therefore, you're going to see actually a decrease in your finances because your patients will just be hanging out the whole time, not getting better. So it's really that making sure we have a good process to identify the patients who should be seen, who need to be seen, and have that good documentation for when we're not seeing them as well. So we have that justified because you will be having the payment for patients who potentially have a speech comorbidity, who have a speech case mix index, but they're not getting treatment. So we want to have that documentation to support why we're not involved as well as why we are involved ethically. Yeah. I, I love one piece about what you just said about we have to essentially get these patients better to get right. paid. Right. You know, and I think I think that really speaks to everything we've been trying to do in our field lately is get everybody up to par with evidence-based treatment strategies and, you know, don't just slap thick and liquids on someone, <laughs> you know, actually do some rehab and, yeah. and do some treatments that we have available to us. So I think, you know, if us preaching to the choir isn't going to do it, then maybe changing this whole model to, right. hey, we actually need to get our patients better to get them to get paid. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I was actually at a conference all week for our organization. So doing kind of that final prep work, making sure all of our directors of rehab are on the same page and one of the questions that came up was, and it was one by one of our um, PTOT directors, and they asked, you know, with the speech comorbidities and the ICD-10 mapping on those, why aren't a lot of the ICD-10 codes on there that we use for speech a lot of the times? And the scary thing is, is as a huge collective throughout the United States, we've only been using a really small amount of ICD-10 codes. So CMS has essentially said, you know, this is what the data shows that you've been using. So this is all we're going to give you. And in the future, if we see more need, then we might modify the regulations and the rules. So I think it's really important that not only we, that we have really good diagnostics, really good evidence-based therapy, but also making sure that we're communicating with either our health information, our MDS coordinators, whoever does the coding and really gets those diagnoses on your billable sheets that we have everything reflected appropriately and appropriately diagnosed to, you know, the last letter to the, what is it? The seventh, ninth characteristic. I don't even know. ICD-10 is just like this long list of numbers and letters. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, but really making sure we continue to advocate for what we're truly treating and what we're truly seeing. Yeah. And I think that's, I don't want to say where we've gotten ourselves in trouble because that's, that's not the right word I want to say, but I think we need to do a better job of understanding that stuff and understanding the billing codes. And I think kind of the big panic that's coming down the pike now is everyone's like, well, now I've been told that I have to do group therapy instead. 
<laughs> and, you know, the big thing is, well, how do I do dysphagia group therapy? <laughs> and I know for some, there, for some MACs, there is no dysphagia group therapy code. For some, there is, and for some, there isn't. So it's like, you can't all of a sudden just do something that you can't ethically properly bill for. Right. Right. And like you said, it's, it's knowing how the billing process works. I mean, I don't think yeah. we can really advocate for our patients if we don't know what's being put on the bill that they're receiving. Yeah. I know when we were in New York, when we were at the collective, I was talking about the max and your LCDs, your local coverage determinations. And the discussion came up of dysphagia group therapy and of all of us sitting around our table, only one person there had a Medicare administrative contract, a MAC that allowed dysphagia group therapy. Yeah. So yeah. really knowing what does your local coverage determination say? What can you do? And do you even know what your MAC is? Do you know what those codes are? Do you know if you have different regulations? And I think, unfortunately, so many of us out there, we just do our treatment, we put down a CPT code, and we expect everything is going to be fine and dandy. So you got to know what you can and can't do to not only protect your license, but also to protect your patients. Because the worst thing to happen is six, eight months down the road, your patient ends up getting this bill and the family member comes to you and says, I don't understand why I'm being billed for something. Didn't you provide the correct services? So. Yeah. Yeah. I think we did, we did do an episode with Jessica Lasky all about kind of the ethics yeah. of billing and, and so much of that came up. And I think especially now that we always should have known this <laughs> stuff, but I think especially now <laughs> we really need to know these yeah. things. So Lisa, if, if people aren't familiar with, you know, where do you find your Mac? Where do you find your LCD? Can you kind of walk them through where they might find that information? Yeah, definitely. So cms.gov. I have it bookmarked on every single electronic piece of equipment I have. Um, cms.gov is my favorite place to go. It has everything you need to find. If you go into their search engine, you can just type in MAC and it brings up a page for your Medicare administrative contracts. Within that, there's a search engine. You can either search by your state. You can search, if you know the name, like NGS um, or JPEG, if you know the name of where you are, maybe you've seen it on the bottom of those little letters that you get at your communities, you can search by them. And it comes up and it breaks down everything that they accept for billing, everything they accept for the CPT codes, brings up also the number of CPT codes you can use within a time frame. And it's really crucial to know these things because especially if you do hear of services being denied, if you hear that from your therapy director or maybe you're a therapy director yourself, having that resource and saying, no, according to our MAC and the local coverage determination, this should be covered. And here's why, direct from what they say. And it is unfortunate because we have these different, you know, kind of private health insurers that are interpreting Medicare regulations. And there are variables within them that are a little bit different. And then also, if you look in the CMS RAI manual, so you can also Google that or put it right into the cms.gov search bar, Chapter 10 of the manual is all about therapy. So just go in, chapter 10, that's where you want to look. And you can also sign up each Medicare administrative contract. So each MAC has their own website outside of CMS. It's usually their letters. So like 
the one that I primarily look in is ngsmedicare.gov. And it pulls up all of the regulations and you can sign up for newsletters and hot tips. And they send out, it's called your MLN. It's your Medicare letter of news. And they send out information on a weekly basis, if not more. And it's all of the potential changes, what's coming down the pipe. And within those, there's always transcripts attached. So you can really dive deep if if you need to, if you want to. That's kind of my rabbit hole sometimes, but... Awesome. No, that's great. I think because that's the thing is a lot of times, you know, we as just the lonely SLPs, you know, don't know where to go find this information. So thank you for sharing that because I think there's a lot of people that want to know more about this and they want (laughs) to know how to cover their butts and and get the patient's bills paid the way they should. So yeah. yeah. So thank you, Lisa. Yeah. I give it to my patients. I give it to my family members that come in, you know, because not only do we have to advocate, we have to help them to advocate as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. So you had mentioned briefly this change where we have all of these organizations, all these corporations all of a sudden asking us to do groups. And I think we need to recognize what groups are and know the definitions and know, you know, if it's, if and where and when it's appropriate. So, you know, they've they've kind of changed the regulations a little bit in regards to groups before it was, you know, four people depending on your payment type would depend on who could be in your group, what the percentages were. So essentially if you had four people in a group for an hour, each person would be billed 15 minutes essentially because it was divided by four. They've changed it up a little bit with the PDPM changes. So the new definitions of groups is actually two to six patients who are doing the same or similar activities. So it's, it's opened it up a little bit. I think it's actually a really nice opportunity for us to really look at our patients in a little bit different of a manner. I know I love doing communication groups and sometimes having those individuals where they can really bounce those ideas off of each other, work on you know sequencing and problem solving if it's more of your cognitive patients and really putting them in more of lifelike scenarios because, you know, Therapy can't just happen within a wall, within an office. It needs to be functional and we need to be able to target that in ways that are meaningful and realistic for our patients. I'm not a worksheet person. I really hate worksheets. Um, Yeah. But they can be a good tool to help move you into doing kind of those group settings. Because like I said, there, there is a time and a place for them, but it shouldn't be that October 1st, we just flip this magic switch and all of a sudden we have every single patient on caseload who can magically do groups because our patients aren't going to change. So we really have to know who's appropriate, when are they appropriate, and also recognizing when do you do group versus when do you do concurrent. So looking at those definitions. So group is two to six, similar to or the same activity, where is with concurrent, concurrent is two individuals and they're not performing same or similar activities. So it's just you have two people. So a little bit, a little bit different. So essentially you're seeing two people at the same time. That's a little bit harder, I think, in the speech world. It does take a little bit more creative thinking when you're doing concurrent. And then there are some other regulatory things as far as what the payer source is, what the percentages are. So also knowing that it's not just a, all of a sudden everybody can be grouped, everybody can be concurrent. You know, if you are having a director, if you are having an administrator, whoever it might be, say, 
here's your schedule and here's all these groups that we've assigned to you. Really spend some time looking at what your local coverage determination says and also know who those payers are. A lot of times I'll talk to, when I talk to therapists, they'll say, oh, I have a Part A patient. Okay, well, do you have a Medicare Part A patient? Do you have a Part A Advantage patient? Do you have a Part A Supplement patient? Do you have a Part A Levels patient? Because all of those things have very, very different rules and different regulations involved with them. And so not just taking it as you have a Part A patient, ask, you know, who is the insurance provider with the Part A? And especially as our population is changing, we're seeing a lot more patients who don't take their Medicare benefits. In Minnesota, for example, we see a huge amount of individuals on UCARE, on Humana, or on Blue Cross Blue Shield, and they're all Medicare A Advantage plans. So they have similar rules, but also very different and very strict regulations as well. So definitely knowing that asking those questions can help to drive how you're treating your patients as well. Do you think that's something that falls on the SLP shoulders, Lisa, or is that something that the DOR should really... Oh, I would, I would love to say that all of our DORs are armed with this information and have that background knowledge, but the reality of it is a lot of times I see even our admitting nurses and our MDS coordinators, whoever in your system really takes that intake information and runs the insurance, sometimes they don't even know which is really scary. And I think that's why we need to know to ask the questions and say, hey, you know, patient Bob said that he has this monkey insurance, but I see on the face sheet or the schedule or whatever it is that you use in your community, it says part A. Can you tell me which part A it is? Is he straight Medicare? Are we using a replacement plan? And just having that conversation be part of those, either those morning meetings your reimbursement meetings, your interdisciplinary meetings, whatever it is that you have in your organization. I think it's something that everybody in the community needs to know about, needs to talk about it, because it can have some really, really negatively impactful financial implications for it if you don't have it correct. Yeah. 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 I think I just, I recently have a, had a group that I do fees for, and they just realized that they hadn't been billing out the code for two years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So it's just like, yeah. I, we definitely talked about this over and over and over in our first meeting and yep. yeah. So yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> oh yeah. And especially I know that a lot of organizations are, they're kind of unfortunately taking this gut reaction of we're not going to get paid for minutes. I have silent quotations right there. Yeah. Um, so the reaction is therapy is now an expense instead of a money-making source. And that's really kind of the wrong way to look at it. Because if we can advocate for what our services truly are and help be that kind of expert in the insurance field, it's a way that we can really show our worth to, especially those organizations who kind of say like, oh, it doesn't really matter if you're here anymore because I'm going to get paid anyways, which, well, that's a whole nother discussion in itself for that organization. But (laughs) yeah, yeah. Yeah. But if you're hearing that as, you know, as a clinician, I think it's important to know what your regulations say and know where those sources are and advocate for them. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Did we clear up all the myths, you think? I don't know. There's a lot of them out there. There is. There is. <laughs> I guess one that I've heard, I think it was posted 
on the group a while back is being asked to evaluate every single person that comes in. So my question is, is that your process now? Because again, it's just a date change. It's just a change in how the money is funneled in. Um, the skilled services don't change. So if your facility's current practice is not to evaluate, then maybe it's looking at it as a team. What is our practice in appropriately identifying those patients? Is it that we train our nurses to screen? Is it that our therapy team specifically, whether it's PT, OT, or speech, are they looking at the chart and doing a screen? And then if they see those key indicator items, recommending an evaluation. I've heard a couple communities that all of a sudden they've changed their standing orders where it's just every single person coming in has PT, OT, and speech evaluation orders. I would caution that. Are you, are you going in and a patient who comes in with, you know, I'm going to say just a hip fracture. We never see just a hip fracture, but you know, just a hip fracture comes in and then we're doing a full-blown evaluation, but there's no indicators. There's been nothing discussed that anything is related to speech. Is that really an appropriate use of our time and our resources versus, you know, a shorter screen where we're just documenting why we're not evaluating, why we're not doing further dives into their treatment? So I think, you know, it, it has to be a team approach into how you do this. And it's it's not a one size fits all. Um, it really depends on how your community is structured. And I feel our organization has been very fortunate. You know, we've been working on what does our reimbursement meetings look like? What do our morning standups look like? Do we have a checklist that goes through patient identifiers to make sure nobody's falling through the cracks? So we're not using a one-size-fits-all blanket approach. Everybody who comes in doesn't have evaluation orders. Everybody is expected to be screened, though, to ensure that we're not missing anybody. Yeah, I think I think what's interesting is you hear some some SLPs say, "Well, I don't have time to screen everybody," and then and then it, the conversation shifts to, "Okay, well now nursing's going to screen everybody," and it's like, "Well, why is nursing screening all my patients?" You know, it's like we want our cake and eat it too, and I and I don't know what the right answer is, but I think exactly what you said. I do know a few facilities that they've always just screened everybody, so I don't anticipate much will change with those. But if there are some that people are falling yeah. through the cracks a ton, I'm sure they are going to. Oh yeah, make a change. Yeah, so. and it, it it'll be interesting to see really what Medicare ends up doing because you know we we still have to document our minutes. We still have to capture those on the discharge MDS, so that's not going away. So if if you are seeing a dramatic decline in your caseload, you really want to be asking those questions. You know, if you had a certain type of patient that you always saw or always got eval orders on, and now all of a sudden you're not really bringing up the question of, you know, this is my typical patient who I typically see. And now I'm seeing that's not happening after a magical date has happened. The patient hasn't changed. The case mix hasn't changed. Why would the services change? So let's move on to interdisciplinary teams. Interdisciplinary teams. I love the the concept of the interdisciplinary team. In my experience, it can be one of the best ways to truly treat the patient in a way that is all-encompassing. We're not leaving anyone out and we're really breaking down kind of those walls or those silos that we tend to put ourselves in. A lot of times, you know, you'll hear in different communities, it's like, oh, that's therapy or, oh, that's nursing. They, they do that or those people do these things. Um, and as SLPs, I think we tend to say we're on SLP Island all by ourselves. Sometimes our offices aren't even near the gym or we're out in who knows where. 
but if we really want to treat the patients, and I think this is where PDPM is really trying to push us, is that true interdisciplinary team collaboration. It's all of the players coming together. It's nursing, it's PT, it's OT, it's speech, and it's your non-therapy auxiliaries. It's your frontline associates coming together, your CNAs, your activities, your wellness, your social services. Everyone really has to be a player in order to truly capture what's going on with the patient, not only for reimbursement reasons, but also to ensure that we're doing what's best for the patient to get them to their functional goals. And how do you how do you expect PDPM to change this? I think it'll be kind of more of a hyper focus on who brings what to the table and who offers what at the table. As an organization, we've gone through a couple different case studies. We've pulled different patient profiles and compared them in the rug-based system to the PDPM system and really looked at what does our interdisciplinary team conversation and communication look like? And are we truly capturing what's going on with the patient? Are we getting credit for what we do on an everyday basis? And it's really looking at and knowing who your patients are that come in the door, knowing their diagnoses and knowing what you bring to the table as an SLP, you know, as a nurse, as a PT, as an OT, as whoever it is. And also knowing how, how do we capture that in a way that gives us the reimbursement that reflects what we truly are doing. And the only way we can do that is by having an interdisciplinary discussion about what we do as our individual disciplines. So if you have somebody, for example, who comes in and maybe they come in because they had a hip fracture and replacement, but while they were in the hospital, they had a CVA their primary diagnosis coming in might still be that hip fracture. But as a team, you want to discuss what is the primary area that's impacting the care we're providing. And it might be that CVA, so those neurological components. So all of a sudden, you're looking at different um, clinical groupings, and you're looking at different reimbursements. If we don't have everyone at the table discussing you know, the cognitive impairments, their swallowing, If they're on a mechanically altered diet, um, I've seen people come in on, you know, a mechanical soft or a soft diet, and it's because they lost their dentures in, in transit. So are we having that discussion or are we just taking it at face value and then realizing, oh, crap, we're really overbilling for something that we're not providing that's not clinically indicated. And it really takes every single person coming to the table and recognizing all of those pieces and all of those values. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that's another big gray area right now is kind of the diet piece, <laughs> you know, is, does, are they on a mechanical soft diet because they have dysphagia or are they on a mechanical soft diet? Like you said, because their dentures are lost in the laundry yep, somewhere. Yep. And it so. kind of, from some of the transcripts that we've looked at, it kind of looks like CMS isn't not really sure but there isn't really good data and outcomes to support either one. They recognize that, you know, having a swallowing deficit increases your rehospitalization risk. On the flip side, you have a lot of people who are on mechanically altered diets, which includes thick and liquids, who have very high rehospitalization rates. So is it the swallowing? Is it the altered diet? Really not quite sure. That's why they have that breakdown of any, all, or neither, all three, what's going on, because it is all of them playing in together. It happens all the time. We have somebody come in, they're on a mechanically altered diet, but they don't have a swallowing disorder in their diagnoses. So we're still getting credit for that altered diet, 
but we don't have the diagnosis to support it. And I think that's where we're going to see a lot of shifts is maybe a change from if you have this altered diet, but no diagnosis, why are we reimbursing for cutting up food or thickening liquids? And I think it's important that we, as a team, come together and we really support that information. You know, if they're on an altered diet, you know, right now it says, yep, we get credit for them being on an altered diet. Let's make sure we have it documented. Why? Is it patient preference? Is it because they're indentulous? Is it because they truly have a dysphagia and we're trying to figure these things out? Or is it just somebody who slipped through the cracks? And, you know, I talked about the other day, actually, we have these patients who they come in on altered diets, on thickened liquids, and it's like, oh, well, they don't have dysphagia, so they never get a speech order. And they just, all of a sudden, they're discharging home, they're into our home health system, and then they rehospitalize because that was never the appropriate thing for them. Really bringing everyone to the table to talk about who the patient is. Yeah. And I think this, I think this shows that how much of a need there is and is going to be for instrumental assessments as well. Yes, definitely. It's something I'm really excited for, actually. It's been our focus area in our organization. um, And we're actually, we've had this plan to amp up our focus. Our 2020 year is going to be 12 months of speech and really looking at... Let's make this a nationwide movement. I'm super excited. Um, (laughs) Yeah, we're doing 12 months of lunch and learns, all on different topics related specifically to speech. And then kind of backed by two big CEU days, one in the spring, early winter, and then one in the late summer, fall area. So really focusing on not only giving our SLPs the knowledge and the support to really provide what we should be providing to our patients, but providing them that opportunity to collaborate within our organization and then with also other SLPs within our area. Because I think I know you've said it a couple of times, like you don't know what you don't know until you don't know you didn't know it. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think it's our responsibility to know the things we don't know. Like, and yeah. we have to advocate for our own education. The things that we were doing 10 years ago, the things I learned in school, like I don't even know why I learned them in school because I don't use any of it. But even students who are coming out now, you know, do we have a good process to educate them on what we truly need as medical SLPs, as clinicians in this setting. I like to say we don't have x-ray vision and we need that support. You wouldn't go to PT and OT and say, I need you to go walk Mrs. Jones before she's had an x-ray to determine if she has a fracture or not. You wouldn't tell them, oh, we'll just guess on her weight bearing status. And it's okay if you're wrong because we got to get her up and walking anyways. But we're saying the same thing as SLPs, and we're perpetuating the cycle by not getting those instrumentals, by not advocating for the evidence that we truly need for our patients. We just had, as I had said, we just had our big leadership conference, and our organization has actually been piloting some of the new synchrony uh, equipment, so the surface EMG biofeedback equipment for swallowing that's coming out. And we just had a huge, really huge success story within one of our communities a gentleman, status post CVA in 2017, he's been NPO on a feeding tube up until, well, we started seeing him in March, I believe. And he'd already gone through four or five different SLPs, been seen pretty much continuously since he left the hospital in 2017 and came to our one of our clinics, 
we started using the Surface EMG, really looking at that biofeedback. He ended up getting a fee as we were really able to see what was going on in that collaborative consultation. And not only is he off his feeding tube, he's actually going in for an appointment to get his trach removed. And his goal was to eat a brat and drink a beer. And he, he's reached awesome. his goal. So, you know, it, it really goes to show like using all of those tools that we have at our resource really makes an impact. And, you know, we didn't just pass them off as a, you know, well, you, you are on a feeding tube, like you've never swallowed well. And this guy has functional deficits, but we were able to see what they are and then really treat what they are in an effective manner. So. Yeah. And that's how everybody yeah. should be yeah. practicing. <laughs> Drives me bananas when I hear we're not. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Should we switch gears and talk about Section K? Ooh, or Section is there anything K. else you wanted to add there? Section K is part of the MDS, deals with the essentially the swallowing part of the MDS. And there's a lot of questions around it and really who should be doing it, not only who's filling it out, but who's collaborating on the education. And I think each organization is kind of tackling it a little bit differently as far as who's putting in and who's collaborating. But as SLPs, we definitely need a seat at the table. We need to be talking about what's going on because it is a huge driver in the reimbursement that we're getting. And it's a huge documentation and justification for why we might be seeing these patients. I know with our organization, we have it added into our electronic documentation for our CNAs. So immediately when a patient comes in, they can start marking if they see any of those indicators on the Section K questions. You know, is there pocketing? Is there coughing? Is there drooling? Is there loss of food? And then also as an SLP, you're coming back and you're collaborating with the dietitian, with nursing, with the MDS coordinator, the one who's actually putting those numbers in and clicking submit and making sure you're all on the same page. So if for say you're doing your chart review and you recognize that the patient maybe was on an altered diet, has a diagnosis of dysphagia, or there's an indication for evaluation, are we getting in, are we getting it done so we have all of the appropriate information to reflect on that section K of the swallowing? And I think it's not a it's not a one size fits all. It's not a let's just hand this section to our SLPs or just hand it over to dietary or hand it over to another person. It has to be a collaborative conversation because obviously we're not with our patients 24-7. We really have to take that information from our frontline associates because it is their usual performance that we're looking at. So if we never see those things, but maybe your evening CNA is seeing them, we have to have that conversation and reflect that in the documentation. Yeah, but don't be afraid of Section K. It's always been there. I, I think I, I think what I love about all this is it's like everyone's so scared of it. And it's like, you yeah. shouldn't be. You should just be documenting what your patient, how they're currently presenting and what you plan to do to get them better. And I don't think I don't think it needs to be this hard and and some big scary no, thing. No, I know? mean if anything, I think the people who have the hardest job with the switch from rugs to PDPM are our MDS coordinators. You know, they just have to figure out how they're pulling information in a little bit different of a manner. You know, hopefully you have an organization where everyone is documenting what they're doing. So it's not a change in practice. It's just a change in how that data is compiled and then how the number spits out. All right. Um, so let's talk about cognitive indicators. 
All righty. So cognitive indicators. So this has been a really kind of a hot button issue, I think, as we're moving forward. So with PDPM and the cognitive indicators, it is based off of the BIMS. So your BIM scores in our organization, it's traditionally done by our social services. Some organizations have different individuals who do it. I know some indiv individuals have expressed that they're moving to have their SLPs do it. I kind of have mixed feelings on it. I think it's one of those things where if whoever is administering the BIMS is trained and does it the way it's standardized, then it's really not going to matter who does it. It doesn't matter what your title is. But it does have a huge indication on reimbursement and payment. So making sure that as a therapy team, as an interdisciplinary team, that you're talking about those BIM scores, that you're talking about, you know, if you're getting a 14 or 15 on the BIMS, but the patient can't sequence to get to the bathroom or they can't recall if they put on their call light or whatever it is, you want to be having that conversation of, okay, should we re-administer? Did we catch them at a different time? You know, why are we seeing such variability? And especially if you have nursing documentation that's stating a patient is maybe alert and oriented times one, times two, if they're documenting that, but your BIM score is reflecting an intact cognition, we want to be having that conversation because we want all of our documentation to support what we're doing and support the reimbursement that we're getting. And I think as an SLP, we need to know what the BIMs say. We need to know what it is. So I would encourage you, look up the BIMs. Look up the questions they're asking. We have a joke when we walk into social services, we just go, bed blue sock. And everybody knows like that's the BIMs. Um, we have residents who see social services walk down the hall and they go, bed blue sock, because that's a part of the BIMs. But I think it's important that you know, sometimes people say, oh, well, you know, they've, they've been given the BIM so many times that they remember what it is. They've memorized the test and cognition doesn't work that way. If somebody's going to recall something, they're going to recall it. If they're not going to memorize it and then recall it back. You know, so really looking at how are we interpreting the test? First of all, are we giving it the right way? Are we interpreting it the right way? And then as a team, do we break it down and really look at where are those deficit areas? If you look at the BIMS, it's kind of kind of the same if you're looking at like the slums or the MOCA. Do you know what areas indicate which part of cognition? So where we need to focus, where we need to put documentation, where we need to advocate for our patient services. They might get a 14, they might be cognitively intact, but have more executive functioning difficulties. So are we supporting that? But, you know, the BIMS in themselves, I think it really doesn't matter who gives them. We just have to make sure that everybody's giving them the same way and we're not, what's the right word? I try and say like, don't feel bad if the patient does bad when you give the BIMS or when you give any standardized test in itself. Like we want a true reflection of their score and of their ability so we can truly help them to reach their functional goals. Yeah. And if we're, yeah. you know, inflating their scores because we feel bad or we're concerned that we're going to hurt their feelings because they didn't get bed blue sock or whatever questions they didn't get right. I mean, half the time, I don't know what the date is. Um, but I think we need to recognize that that score in itself and in a standardized manner is going to really help us to get the correct services for that patient. Can you talk a little bit about what your orient or ugh, what your organization does for patients with falls? Yes. 
I know this was such like a mind blowing topic at, at the collective live. So, so yeah. we've actually, we've created an entire falls program within our organization and we piloted last year during the summer and we have a, it's a really collaborative approach. Um, it's all hands on deck. We do, we're collaborating with our Accelerated Care Plus partners. So they're one of our education partners within our therapy department and also within our nursing departments. And then we come to the communities and we do education on really what is behind a fall. And we talk to all of the associates. So it's not just nursing that comes to the training. It's not just therapy. It's environmental services. It's culinary. It's housekeeping. It's our wellness, our activities. We invite our volunteers, our business office, all of the leaders are there. And everybody really learns about what contributes to a fall. What are those key indicators and those risks that we need to be watching and those small changes? Because if we don't recognize the small changes, we can't work to prevent a fall from happening in the first place. And what I really found interesting as we went through this pilot and we started gathering the data is, gosh, I should have pulled it up, but it was over 80% of the patients that were having falls there was a documented cognitive impairment with these patients. Yet in our pilot, we had less than a 13% referral to our speech pathologist. So we really looked at that and said, you know, if this is what we're saying the falls are related to, if, you know, less than 20% of our falls are related specifically to a physical deficit, because we went through and looked at the scores that the PTs and the OTs had received on their standardized objective tests. We looked at their balance deficits. We looked at, you know, does the patient have vertigo? Do they have poor core stability? Do they have a poor gait pattern? Or is it more where we're seeing that impulsivity, that problem solving, the poor sequencing? Have we looked at the environmental structure of the patient's room and how we're interacting and engaging with them? are we providing a supportive environment that promotes safety versus just saying, oh, well, the patient forgot to call for help. Well, that's more, we might not change that. So we need to pull in all of our disciplines. And what we found is when we started pulling in our SLPs and we really started focusing on what essentially we were documenting as the blame, the cognitive impairment, we saw a huge decrease in our falls and especially our falls with major injury. And I think that was the important part because you know, no, you're not going to prevent every single fall, but we want to make sure that if a patient is falling, not only do we recognize why they're falling and help to promote as much safety within it, we want to be able to promote a safe fall knowing that it's going to happen. So it's really taking that interdisciplinary team approach, looking at the patient's cognitive level of function, looking at what their environment set up as, looking at how do we interact with these patients. One of the really big trends we found was with our Parkinson's residents. And a lot of the Parkinson's medication has a side effect of um, postprandial hypotension. So a, a hypotensive episode or a drop in your blood pressure around like 30 minutes to two hours after consuming a meal. And especially in the long-term care population, we know that our meals aren't exactly three times a day. And then when you look in your memory care population, what we found was a lot of our residents would have agitation or as we're trying to change the translation of communication expressions, 
that that were difficult to address, the solution would be to put them next to the nurse's station, give them a snack. Well, you give them a snack at the late time of the evening, which is really their day cycle. And then all of a sudden they have a postprandial episode when they go to get up, they have a fall. So really looking at it as a whole team approach and understanding that what their norms are aren't necessarily what our norms are. So we shouldn't be imposing that onto them. And speech has really been an integral part of that in that problem solving and in that collaborative approach to addressing falls. I love that, Lisa. Hopefully that's, hopefully that wakes some people up a little bit. It's awesome. I'll have to, I have to find the the form. We did a breakdown of kind of the the top areas where speech should be your first referral versus PT and OT when it comes to falls and kind of just different areas of what we can address within our discipline and why we are best suited education wise to do these type of things. Awesome. That's so great. I think that brings us to anything else that we still need to clarify. Just don't panic. It's just a date. <laughs> yeah. 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 What about as far as, is there anything within PDPM that's still kind of not clear? I think like any other change, it's going to be one of those things where as a team, you have to start doing it. And then as you do it, you'll start to see where your challenges lie within your specific community. And there is kind of this, this, this unknown, this fear of, well, what's going to happen, especially if we do start identifying patients because we're having a better conversation, we're having a better interdisciplinary team approach. And then all of a sudden we start seeing a big possibly increase in our services, which I don't think there's anything bad or wrong with that. We just have to make sure we document and have everything in place to justify why we're seeing these changes. On the flip side, if you're having people come in and they're really not clinically appropriate for whatever service it might be, making sure we're documenting why we're not seeing them as well. Because that whole payment structure, you're still getting paid based on essentially patient diagnoses and their classification, their, co- their comorbidities. So we want to make sure we're supporting whatever services we are aren't providing. I know CMS put out a bunch of kind of red flags. I have them written down because I was like, oh, that's interesting. Sometimes it's like, screwed if you don't, screwed if you are. I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but essentially, you know, target compliance areas that they're, they've come out and said they're really going to be looking at. So I think it's good to know what are those key areas that CMS has said, hey, we are telling you right up front, we're already going to look at these areas. So just make sure you have your ducks in a row. But they've said, you know, low provision of therapy minutes per skilled resident. So if you're not providing minutes like you used to, we want to know why. Have your documentation. On the flip side, high provision of therapy minutes for your skilled residents. Why did that change? It was just a date. Why did your patient case mix change? A big thing I think is poor outcomes based on your section GG. So really making sure that you have that collaborative conversation, that your communities aren't just taking therapies numbers and putting them in because it's the usual performance of the patient. It's not therapies performance of the patient. It's what your patient usually does on that daily basis. So are we accurately capturing that? And then do our outcomes reflect services we've provided for them. And then, of course, there's a flip side of that too. They are also going to be looking at exceptionally high outcome rates. So if you guys as an organization traditionally have, you know, very small margins for outcomes, so your patients, 
you know, maybe come in at min mod assist and discharge of that standby contract guard, and that's what you've traditionally been doing, then all of a sudden you have patients coming in at a at a eight eight or a totally dependent and they're discharging at modified independent. Well, I really hope your patients themselves have changed in who you're accepting, not how you're documenting those patients. We shouldn't see this huge switch in really what's coming through our doors unless there's been a strategic plan within your organization to change the complexity of who they're accepting. Then the other thing they said, you know, they're looking at especially is group concurrent minutes capped at 25% and it's a combination. So combining concurrent and group, no more than 25% of the entire services you provide. Currently nationwide, we provide less than 2% group and concurrent minutes. So if that's where our bar is right now, and all of a sudden you're jumping to 23, 24, 25% group and concurrent, again, why? What's changed with who your patients are that drives that? But it's good to know they're looking. (laughs) Yes, yes. Thanks so much, Lisa. This has been so helpful. Yeah, yeah. No worries. Is there anything, anything, any final thoughts, anything else you want to add that we missed? I think the biggest thing is like, as a clinician, if you're doing the right thing, the right things are going to happen. So, you know, if you know in your gut that the right things are not happening, that's a reflection for yourself that maybe you're not in the right place, but definitely make sure you're advocating for the right things to happen and, and stick with that. All right. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you, Teresa. Um, She's got some awesome resources here that we'll make sure to include in the show notes so you guys have access to all these PDFs and links of where to find all this because I promise Lisa didn't just make it all up. So, (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, Lisa. Perfect. Thank you, Teresa. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank you so much to all of you for listening. 